Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Carlos Acevedo about his new book, The Duke, The Life and Lies of Tommy Morrison. Carlos is an award-winning boxing writer. His work has appeared in several publications, including Inside HBO Boxing, Undisputed Champion Network, Boxing News, Boxing Digest, and other places as well. Um, Carlos, welcome to the show. Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you for coming on. <clears throat> um, Carlos, this book is just shockingly disturbing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I learned so much about um, kind of the underbelly of the of professional boxing. Um, I mean, I think everyone kind of knows that boxing is uh, corrupt in certain ways and certainly shady um but uh, the the depth of it was startling to me to some extent um and we'll get into all that but can can you start us off by talking a little bit about tommy morrison's background where did he come from what you know his family that kind of stuff well tommy morrison came from a a very very small town called jay oklahoma uh, which at the time he was living there had a population of about 2,000, uh, give or take. So it was sort of that uh, John Cougar, Mellencamp, I was born in a small town kind of thing. And he had a pretty harrowing background. Um, his parents split up. His mother was charged uh, with murder for accidentally killing her husband's mistress. Uh, at a bar. So, you know, Tommy had to sort of, you know, catch as can be life style growing up. And, you know, when he was 13 years old, they, his parents decided to stick him in tough man contests, which is just, uh, it's astonishing to think about that. You know, they forged an ID. He didn't look like he was 18 years old at all, but they forged an ID you know, his mom gave him a tattoo when he was 10 or 13 years old to make him look older. And so he was in this uh, tough man 
circuit for a couple of years, uh, fighting grown truck drivers, fighting bouncers, fighting, you know, construction workers, bikers, et cetera. And, you know, that sort of led him uh, into the world of boxing. And there's this whole point of like, he had this strange background, this patchwork background. Uh, his father was an alcoholic. His father was abusive. Uh, his parents split up. And from there, he went to tough man contests and then onto the crazy world of professional boxing where nothing is as it seems and it's completely seamy. So it's sort of fitting that he went on from one strange thing to another as a young man. Yeah, I, I found the whole um, – that put aside the fact that he was 13 years old and so young and how – I mean that um, sounds – frankly sounds like child abuse to me. Um, but uh, – just the the whole that whole world of of the tough man contests in general. I, d- I didn't know much about that. Can you you talk a little bit about a little more about those contests? What 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 that was all about? Well, <laughs> tough man contests were that was a fad in the early eighties. Um, I even made a movie, a Hollywood movie, out of it, starring uh, Dennis Quaid, um, and. It took hold in the Southeast and in the Midwest during the 80s when there was a pretty big recession going on. Uh, so, you know, people needed money. And some of the more daredevil types or some of the more drunk types, uh, you know, got into these not even organized tournaments where last man standing is the guy who wins the uh, total prize. So Tommy sometimes got as much as $1,000 uh, for winning a tough man tournament. And according to Tommy, he won all of his tough man fights except for one. So it was a pretty bizarre scene. Um, you know, it was like a combination of Hooters and and blood sport. You know, so it was pretty crazy. And I think you're right. I mean, that is sort of, if you look at it now, it seems sort of abusive to put a, a child into that. But But the truth is he could handle himself because he had years of amateur experience behind him. Right. Was was that was that path common at that time? Were there a lot of people who kind of jumped from the tough guy contest, the tough man contest to professional boxing? No, not at all. Um, I think the most I think the most successful professional boxer who came out of that scene was uh, 80s lightweight Greg Hogan who was lightweight champion, I think, twice. He had a famous trilogy with um, Vinny Pazienza in the 80s, and he was famously beat up by Julio Cesar Chavez in front of supposedly 100,000 fans uh, at a bullfight arena in Mexico. So, no, it takes a lot of discipline and talent to be a professional boxer, and most of these tough guys were nothing like that. I mean, the other famous tough guy fighter, I think, was Butterbean. <laughs> <laughs> and Christy Martin was a tough guy, a tough girl, tough gal. And Grady Brewer, um, who I think won the prize fighter tournament one year, he was a tough man fighter. But no, this is not the way to become a professional prize fighter. <laughs> Definitely not. You know, uh, it's incredible reading your book. You said before how in the world of professional boxing, nothing is as it seems. And, you know, I think I think all of us know that on some level. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big boxing fan, a somewhat casual boxing fan. I, I have to admit, 
reading your book, I didn't, I didn't really understand the depth of it. Um, and it's fascinating how just how Tommy's just whole persona was a complete mirage. I mean, I mean, starting, starting with this story that he was related to John Wayne. Um, can you talk a little bit about the kind of cultivation of, of Tommy's image? Well, yeah, this is an interesting thing. I mean, Tommy was genuinely who he appeared to be on camera and in the newspapers, right? In the, especially in the police blotters and in the headlines. Right. He made in his last, you know, he was genuinely a reckless, tough guy. Um, he loved to party. That was really him. As far as his image in boxing, that was mostly Bill Caton, his co-manager. And Bill Caton had a lot of connections. He was a co-manager of Mike Tyson uh, in the 80s, along with Jimmy Jacobs. And Bill Caton could get you commercial sponsorships. He can get you on TV. And he had a real knack for publicity. And so just the name Morrison was enough for Caton to roll with that ball. Um, Because... In conversation, Tommy seemingly dropped the fact that he might have been related to John Wayne. And so, you know, Bill Caton just ran with that. And that's the first sign that Tommy was more publicity than a potential world champion at that time. You know, he was very talented. Tommy Morrison was very talented. So there are people who who deny that on the one hand, and there are people who exaggerate his talent on the other. But... You know, he was not related to John Wayne. <laughs> I, I spoke to his uncle, Troy Morrison, and Troy told me that, you know, an, a, I guess a grandfather, a, a Morrison grandfather met another Morrison. And, you know, it was just talk. So it's sort of like family lore. But no, he wasn't related to uh, the real Duke. Um. You know, you, you talk, obviously, in the book, uh, you go into depth about just the the, the, the great white hope phenomena. Um, how much was that a part of Tommy's persona? Well, that one, that's an interesting question. The white hope angle essentially existed independently of Tommy Morrison. That was not something he ever really emphasized during his career. Um, there were a few interviews where Morrison acknowledged that being white was advantageous, which, which it is, um, at that time, especially, um, but overall he downplayed its significance, right? But there's sort of this like sporting equivalent to the collective unconscious or something where, you know, people intrinsically saw him as that, and that, that included his management. So, you know, I guess that makes sense that people would immediately associate him with the White Hope uh, story because people tend to identify with boxers. So was the White Hope playbook put into effect by his management? Yes, I think so. That was That's pretty evident. But Tommy also succeeded in a way that his predecessors never did, right? Um, when you think of White Hopes, you think of really bad fighters, hmm. <laughs> right? But, you know, before, before Jerry Coney, came around in 1980, in the the early 80s from Long Island. Um, You know, white heavyweights had that designation of being white hopes, but they were also contenders, right? They had a fight. 
they they clawed themselves into ratings. Um, they were part of the boxing rat race. They were in the mix, basically, looking for paydays, right? So you think of someone like Scott Ledoux. He had like seven or eight losses before he fought Larry Holmes for the title. Um, you know, Jerry Quarry is probably the best example of a white hope who was not built up. He fought just about every heavyweight that mattered for nearly a decade. But then you have... Then you have like the uh, marginal figures like Lee Canalito, uh, Richie Melito, Ty Fields, right? And then you have like at the bottom of the barrel, you have like the New York Jet linebacker, uh, Mark Gaston. <laughs> right. So Jerry Coney set the template of fighting, I don't want to say nobodies, <laughs> but, you know, fighting marginal talents and to put himself in a position to get a giant payday, Right. But Morrison was a little better than that, right? He went beyond those guys. First, he beat George Foreman, of course, and he commanded the spotlight on his own. You know, he was a big ratings draw. Uh, he was also a, a box office attraction in the Midwest and in the Southeast. So, you know, the White Hope thing was a management maneuver, and Morrison really was not interested in that, to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners, of course, know Tommy as Tommy the Machine Gun from Rocky Five. How did how did he land that role? Well, <laughs> you know, for almost every fact, you know, you got to put you have to put facts in quotation marks, I guess. But for every fact, there's like several competing narratives about how this happened, how that happens. So, you know, Tommy and Rocky. The two, the two stories that are most out there are Frank Stallone was watching TV one night and Frank Stallone saw Tommy knock somebody out and Frank Stallone called his brother Sly because Sly needed to cast somebody for Rocky Five. That's one story. And the other story is that it was Sly Stallone who was watching TV and decided this guy might be, you know, Tommy might be uh, good for the part. But I think the real story is Bill Caton. Again, it goes back to Bill Caton. Uh, he was a master publicist. Uh, and he also had a thing about sending tapes, videotapes of uh, his fighters to the media. And he's exactly the kind of guy who would send a, a videotape to Sylvester Stallone and say, hey, check this out. I think he might be good for your movie. And so Stallone watched the tape. And they flew Tommy out for a screen test. And he got the part. Yeah, uh, I think he played it pretty well too, and and uh, you know it wasn't so it wasn't the greatest Rocky movie, but um, you know it was. I think he I think he carried himself well. <laughs> that movie was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Gonna get me in trouble, but what you know? What are you gonna do, right? I mean, yeah, it was like a multi Golden Raspberry Award winner. Um, and the biggest indictment about Rocky Five, other than it was bad, was they stopped making Rockies for like 15, 16 years. That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> everyone, everyone was like, okay, it's enough. <laughs> <laughs> they were like, you know what, forget this. And so it took like 16 more years for the Rocky franchise to reboot. Right. Um, but Tommy wasn't bad at it. He definitely wasn't bad at it. I mean, he. I wrote in the book, I wrote in the Duke, that he was better than Sugar Ray Robinson and uh, Jake LaMotta in their movies. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and Rocky Rocks, right. yeah. Right. So that's a plus. Yeah. Um, you know, I you touched on it before, and, and um, 
Frankly, I kind of I like the way you started the book with kind of laying out that look with with Tommy Morrison. It, it's it's so difficult because he he lied and you know certainly towards the end of his life appeared to be delusional and it was so hard to separate fact from fiction and and who was Tommy Morrison and what was real and what wasn't and part of this mirage was you know building him up um, through fighting nobodies you know so, i mean i mean a couple of the examples it was like if it seemed like they just grabbed a bum off the street and threw him in the ring with him um and that kind of burnished his his record and to an extent his reputation and helped him get his some of his big paydays um and yet he had he had these moments in the ring and he had you know this incredible left hook that you talk about um so how good of a fighter was tommy morrison well, Tommy Morrison, first and foremost, was exciting. Um, there were reasons why he drew a, ma- a mass audience. One of them was that he was white. That's for sure. You know, he had a constituency. The other was he was very, very exciting fighter. Um, you never knew what was going to happen in a Tommy Morrison fight. Sometimes even against the opponents that were, you know, meant to just fall over at the first, you know, opportunity. Right. So he was a good athlete. In high school, supposedly, we never know about these things when, when you talk about Tommy Morrison, but supposedly he was a good a football player. Uh, he played baseball. He played basketball. And supposedly he got a scholarship office offer from, I guess it was Emporia State University, or Emporia University. And so he was a very good athlete, and his left hook was legitimate. He could knock out even very good fighters with a left hook had he gotten the opportunity to actually land a – left hook against a good fighter. And he did against Ray Mercer, but Ray Mercer was almost inhuman. Um, So Tommy could fight, and he had really fast hands. He had the fastest hands of any heavyweight for his era, other than Tyson and Evander Holyfield. And Holyfield was like a a machine with combination punches. So Tommy was talented, right? But his defense was poor. Um, He didn't have the greatest mobility. And... He obviously one of his main problems was he was not in condition most of the time. He was never at his peak condition. The closest he got to peak condition was when he won a decision against George Foreman in 1993. That was about about it. But, you know, he's not underrated. People will tell you that he's underrated, you know, because in boxing, you go by the record as much as you can. You have to add the asterisks as you go along in boxing. But, you know, Tommy was not underrated. He got as far as he could. And even if he was, you know, a monk, I think his limitations would have kept him where he was. Um, His chin was pretty shaky. But he was always exciting to watch. You know, when he knocked out people, even the, you know, even the marginal talents that he fought, you know, on ESPN and the USA Network, I mean, there was a fun, kitschy aspect to seeing him bounce somebody off the off the canvas with the left hook, even though you knew deep in your heart that it wasn't really a competitive contest. But Tommy could definitely fight. I mean, really, you just touched on it. The the crowning achievement of his career was the win over George Foreman. Um, And, you know, you talk in the book about it at that point, and obviously George was old at that time. And um, you talk in the book about how he, you know, was known to, frankly, avoid the, 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 the biggest contenders, the biggest threats to him at that point. Um, so how impressive 
was that victory over George at that time? Well, it's an accomplishment you can't take away from Tommy Morrison. You know, because he has his detractors, he also has some really rabid, delusional supporters. Um, but you can't take away his win from Foreman because Foreman, in his next fight, went on to win the lineal real heavyweight championship of the world against Michael Moore. Um, yet George was t- almost twice as old as Tommy Morrison. So, and George never looked good post Evander Holyfield, except against Michael Moore. And he chased Michael Moore down because he saw something in Michael Moore that he thought he could take advantage of, which was in his mind, he thought that Michael Moore was psychically weak. And he, I think he also questioned his chin. So George Foreman actually tried to sue the sanctioning body to get a fight with George uh, with uh, Michael Moore. But going back to Tommy, when Tommy defeated Foreman, the press was not very you know, impressed. They really dogged him for this fight because he essentially ran um, around the ring. He had this footloose strategy, which was calculated to keep Foreman off balance. And it wasn't the greatest performance at that time. People didn't consider it such a thing. But, you know, I thought it was a pretty, it was a pretty decent fight for heavyweights. And I thought, you know, he put, he, he put in a good strategy. He did what he had to do to win. And even though he heard the boos, he got the WBO title, which didn't mean much at the time. He got the payday. And more important, he secured his immediate future by beating Foreman. But it wasn't a bad fight. Right. Um, you know, uh, Foreman was seemed, the Foreman fight seemed the exception in a way in that uh, it seems in the book that like whenever Tommy was about to make a big breakthrough in his career, um, somehow he kind of got in his own way, whether it was uh, insufficient training or when he, you know, kind of inexplicably scheduled another fight before his big play- payday with Lennox Lewis. Um, and you talk in the book too about, you know, he, he, it seems like he had some issues with anxiety before and during fights. Um, there was kind of this self-destructive kind of self-sabotaging aspect to his career. Um, where do you think that came from? Was that fueled by self-doubt? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't get into it too much in the book, but I think he did have some kind of, I don't know what, success anxiety. Um, It seemed to me that he could have done better. He might not have gotten as far as like the real championship, but he could have done better. But he did sabotage himself at every turn. Um, According to John Brown, his first trainer, you know, Tom Party, Tommy Party before the Ray Mercer fight, which was his biggest fight uh, to date. You know, Ray Mercer was the only non-stiff that Tommy Morrison fought up to that point. And he still went to a 38 special concert beforehand. And according to John Brown, he took ecstasy and he was partying and hanging out. And you don't want to do that with a guy like Ray Mercer. And, and you know, Mercer proved it by, he, he almost killed Tommy Morrison in the ring. So there is something to that, I think. You know, he's a small town guy, maybe... Maybe he thought he was where he belonged, right? Reminds me of uh, Charles Williams' line from the novel The Hotspot, where the narrator, I think the last line is, you know, I found my level and I'm living it. And so Tommy, yeah, right. I mean, like, even when he was a Hollywood guy, 
Tommy didn't hang out in Hollywood. You know, he, he stayed in Kansas City. He stayed in Jay, Oklahoma. You know, so it didn't look like he seemed not just interested, but maybe he didn't feel like he belonged among this sort of uh, celebrity jet set culture. And maybe maybe he didn't want it. But, you know, it does seem odd that he kept losing at inopportune moments, <laughs> basically. You know, there might be something psychic there. Yeah. Uh, do you think Tommy loved boxing? Well, Tommy was good at it. At his level, he was good at boxing. Um, he he was sort of a forthcoming guy at some time, some point. So it was hard always to separate fact and fiction from what he said. But he did say that he felt he was going to be burned out young because of his style. He was very aggressive style, and he took a lot of punishment and sparring to develop that style. Now, that's that style is <laughs> is very hard. Uh, to keep up. And so at certain points, he said he was exhausted from training. He was tired of training. And this is a guy who didn't train all out. Uh, Supposedly he did when he was actually in the ring, in the gym, but he wasn't in the gym enough. So, you know, I think he had mixed feelings about it. But at the same time, you know, boxing is what gave him his identity. And we saw that when it was all over for him, when he was diagnosed with HIV, he could no longer fight until he made his crazy comeback in 2007. So, you know, it's every fighter has that that need to be in the ring because it, their identity is so bound up in it. But Tommy sometimes did seem ambiguous about boxing and his career in general. Yeah. There's a, there's a point in the book where you write very eloquently about this notion of the shot fighter um, when it, you know, it's obvious that his best days are behind him. And Morrison, of course, kept going in the ring after that, as most fighters do. Uh, do you think he realized at a certain point that he was never going to be a champion again or a top contender again? Or, or is that when kind of the delusion started? Well, the thing about Tommy is that he was always going to make money. And um, as long as he didn't keep losing like consecutive fights or whatever, he was basically forced to continue his career because he was a moneymaker and because he was uh, exciting and heavyweight with a big punch, he was always going to be in demand. So there was never an issue of him trying to pick up the pieces from every loss. You know, but the problem with Tommy in general was like after every loss, the competition got progressively worse by the opposition. So he was always and his team. They were always thinking about how can we rebuild to put ourselves back in a position to make half a million dollars, a million dollars, you know, two million dollars, right? And his competition got steadily, steadily worse. And, you know, and none of this, by the way, should be upsetting or surprising to anybody, but like the most stubborn uh, Tommy partisan, you know, people say, oh, his, his quality of opposition was great or better than you say it was, but, you know, his own matchmaker quit because of the opponents, right? Like Peyton Cher was a respected veteran and he quit. Because of how, you know, they ignored his advice and kept fighting low-level guys. You know, in Las Vegas, where you can gamble on whether the sun is going to rise, right? They refused to post odds on, on several of his fights. So, you know, and the contemporary press at the time, which is, you know, far more independent back then than it is now, they shredded him for his opposition. So, 
as long as he was going to keep fighting knockovers, there was always a chance he could rebuild himself, manufacture himself again as a redempted heavyweight. We've been talking mostly about what went on inside the ring, um, though I would argue the most interesting part of Tommy's life and uh, it's what went on outside of it um, and what came to be the lies of his life, really. Um, I guess we'll start, you know, you talked a little bit about his partying, which was pretty epic. Um, can you go into a little more detail about his, his lifestyle outside of the ring? Well, Tommy Morrison was like the Will Chamberlain of boxing, essentially. He was a real womanizer in a way that the average person just, just won't understand, I think. Um, in later years, he would brag about his sexual conquests, and he said that, you know, he slept with, you know, five women a night sometimes, which is crazy <laughs> and exhausting. No wonder he was never in shape for a fight. <laughs> um, so, you know, a lot of the salacious details I got from uh, his second ex-wife's memoir, and she goes into, you know, uh, I get, what do you, what would you call them? Uh, trains and the, and the orgies and stuff like that. Uh, she even uh, told the story about how they checked into a, a hotel and Tommy left for a little while. <laughs> and when he came back, she found out that he had just had a, you know, a trio with, with some other people in the, in the hotel. And <laughs> it's just crazy. And that's really debilitating for a fighter. And, and Tommy was also a, a serious drinker. Um, drugs were not that prominent in his life, but he did dabble in ecstasy and, according to some, uh, cocaine. Um, John Brown said that he definitely used uh, ecstasy before the Mercer fight. So Tommy was just out of control. He was young, reckless, good-looking guy, so he just wanted to party. Um, the responsibilities of the ring, the discipline needed, I guess that was for the future for him, but the future never came. Then, of course, you know, there was the, the HIV diagnosis in 1996, I believe it was, um, and, and the crazy aftermath to that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how Tommy initially responded to being HIV positive and how that changed over time? Well, Tommy was diagnosed with HIV in uh, February 1996. I think it was February 10th. Just a few hours before he was supposed to fight on a Showtime televised card. Um, I mean, we can all imagine that it was devastating, a devastating thing to hear. Um, and of course, he was in shock. Although you do hear that he suspected that he had HIV all along and that somehow he got away with it coming out because he fought in commission in states without boxing commissions mostly. Um, within, where they didn't test. Um, so there is that possibility. But when he first got HIV, um, he held a, a pretty famous, at the time, press conference that was aired live on, I guess it was even CNN. You know, I know it was definitely aired on ESPN. And he seemed remorseful. He seemed, but he did seem like he had it together. Like he understood that HIV was not a death sentence 
you know, but he looked back on his life of, you know, reckless permissiveness, as he put it. And he seemed sort of remorseful. And it looked like he might just live with HIV, like, you know, like millions of people did at the time. You know, they had new medications that allowed you to, you know, live in a, a regular average lifespan at that point. Whereas before, late 80s, early 90s, you know, AZT was a toxic medication. You know, HIV was a death sentence at that time, for the most part. But, you know, Tommy did the talk show circuit, and he seemed like everything would be okay. You know, he took it seriously. And then as time went on, he decided that the medication (laughs) was actually killing people and not HIV. Um, so he got caught up in this entire conspiracy theory stuff. And the interesting thing is that AZT was very toxic. So Tommy wasn't completely off his rocker on, on that point. But by the time Tommy got HIV, there was combination therapy, which limited AZT usage. And so he would have been able to live a relatively normal life from that point on. But he just spiraled into conspiracy theories and and. You know, if he was around today, he'd probably be a moon hoaxer or a flat earther or baby cannibals are baby cannibalizers are in the White House, that kind of thing. Um, and that obviously it hurt him a lot because he refused to take his medication for years. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know if there's really an answer to this, but what do you think that le- led to that slide into kind of, you know, conspiratorial delusional thinking? What Was it? Was it the drugs that he started to get into? Was it too many shots to the head? Was it something else? Well, that's an interesting question because I personally believe that Tommy did suffer from the effects of, of, of his short fighting career. It was a short career, but it was violence. I mean, he got, you know, he almost got killed by Mercer, as I mentioned. Uh, Michael Bent knocked him down three times. Lennox Lewis dissected him. Um, you know, he also got knocked down by other fighters, Razor Ruddock, for example, Carl the Truth Williams knocked him down twice. So he took a lot of jolts in his short career. And um, John Brown, his trainer, told me that even, be- even before the bed fight, the time he got knocked out in one round, even before the bed fight, Brown was uh, worried because Tommy was not taking punches well in sparring. So I do think that he was affected mentally. Uh, by the damage he took in the ring and the drugs he started to take that did not help that did not help because <laughs> he was taking methamphetamine uh, marijuana uh, and then later he added uh, Adderall and sometimes like he mixed them up I mean he didn't mix them in one shot or something like that but you know one day it was meth and one day it was Adderall etc so I think both those facts led him to spiral downward and the internet didn't help. I don't think, you know, he already had this idea that he was invulnerable before he got HIV. And so he probably thought he remained invulnerable and that HIV didn't exist or that it didn't cause AIDS and he was okay. And the medication was not worth taking, but it proved to be a, like a a dangerous mistake. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm left wondering, and I, I, I felt this way while reading the book. Um, you know, as 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 we discussed, it, it, it you write in the book, it, it, it he certainly appears delusional. Um, 
he, there's this great anecdote in the book about there, there was a period when he was running an AIDS foundation for children while simultaneously denying that he was HIV positive. Um, right. and, and then, and then of course he refused to take blood tests when he was, you know, trying to make his comeback after, you know, being out of the game for a while after testing positive. <laughs> I mean, do you think he really, do you think he really believed he didn't have HIV or was this just all part of the show, all part of his way of trying to get back in the ring and make some more money? Well, he went through stages. The first stage was HIV was harmless and HIV medication would kill you, which is, you know, it's not only bizarre, but it's sad. Um, and then he actually did get on HIV medication and he acknowledged that he had HIV and that he was living with it. And then finally, for his comeback, when he said he had HIV no longer, I think there was a pragmatic side to it. He was not going to be able to make a living in boxing if he had HIV. And so he claimed that he didn't. I don't think he believed that he didn't have HIV. I think that was part of the show. Um, it was a way to draw attention. It was also a way to get back into boxing, even though there really was no route to that. Boxing in the big time anyway. But he, he continued with that. It's hard to say what someone like Tommy really believed because he's the guy who said that he teleported. Um, you know, he bought a cave in 1998, I think, because he thought the world was going to end during Y2K and he became a doomsday prepper. Um, and he said a lot of crazy things. So it, it's hard to believe that he didn't think he had HIV and it's hard to believe that he did think he had HIV. That's the best way I can phrase it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, so as we touched on, he, he, he tried to make this comeback years after, you know, being di diagnosed with HIV and uh, it was just crazy and fascinating really to me to read about the different standards in the various States and, you know, to, to get sanctioned to fight and how lax, Many of them were, and you know, and ultimately, uh, how unbelievable how unbelievable it is that that people that a governing body would allow him to get into a, the ring. Um, have the regulations become any more unified since then across the various states, or is it still as lax as it was then? No, it's still it's still pretty haphazard. Um, when Tommy was diagnosed with HIV, some states implemented HIV testing, which they had never had done before. Um, but as, when Tommy came back in 2000, late 2006, 2007, the states were still like that. You know, there are soft commission states, there are hard commission states in boxing, and there are some states that don't have commissions at all. And Tommy concentrated on soft commission states uh, during his comeback. And that was calculated, I think. And you know, I don't think boxing will ever have a central authority. Um, it'll never be unified uh, because that may, that'll make it harder for people to make money. And that's ultimately what it comes down to in boxing is how can we hustle up some money uh, by any means possible, basically, in boxing? Well, you still, you still read about forged medical records once in a while. You still read about, you know, uh, opponents who were not who they say they were, uh, imposters fighting in the ring. Um, I don't think it'll ever improve, to be honest. You know, through it all, there, there seemed to be this magnetism to Tommy, you know, despite 
the HIV diagnosis, despite um, him clearly, you know, no longer being a, a serious fighter in the ring, despite um, the stories of the womanizing and the drug use and, you know, in the late, later years, arrest after arrest, people still seem to be drawn to him. I mean, you mentioned Don Gilbert. She, she's probably the best example, right? I mean, she kind of came back to him when he was in jail. And uh, despite the fact that he once you know, took a needle that he had used and plunged it into her and said some of the effect that she has HIV now too. I mean, and she came back to him. So what, what was it about Tommy that, that drew people to him to that, in that way? Well, as a public figure, uh, you know, Tommy was soft-spoken. He had the soft charis- charisma to him. Um, he was soft-spoken. He was a good looking guy. And he was so exciting in the ring that that drew people to him. As far as personally, a lot of people said he was a giving guy. Um, he was very generous to his friends, to his family, even, even to strangers on the street, like, you know, um, homeless people, down and out people, he would give them money. Um, and this, cha- this AIDS charity thing, which, you know, is sort of a double-edged sword because he didn't believe in HIV, and then he was also part of a foundation. But that was still a good thing uh, <laughs> in his heart. He, his heart was in the right place, I guess. But as far as personally goes, I think there's a question of his fame at the time. And I think people like to be around famous people. It rubs off on them or whatever. And he could be a fun-loving person between, um, between drug bouts. But it was hard to talk, get anyone to talk about him personally. So it's hard for me to say what was going through Don Gilbert's mind. And I don't want to be too judgmental. I mean... You know, he, she did marry him twice. Once it was a bigamous union, uh, <laughs> which, is, which is pretty odd, right? I mean, and then the other time, it was when he was basically just released from jail. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to be judgmental about that. Um, she saw something in him. A lot of women found something in him because, you know, he still kept sleeping with dozens of women after he was diagnosed as HIV positive. So... You know, that's that's something I can't explain, to be honest. It's pretty crazy when you think about it. Um, so, of course, you know, his his life came to a tragic end. Um, what can you talk a little bit about what his life was like at the end in the last, you know, couple of years? Well, the book, The Duke, finishes pretty abruptly um, because the last couple of years of his life, last year in particular, uh, was, was pretty, not only is it sad, but it was uneventful. It was basically going from hospital to hospital. Um, and he was basically in a vegetative state. For a, I won't say vegetative, I'll say non-communicative state. Um, he was bedridden. And it, it really is sad to read about that because that could have been prevented if he had the right people around him. You know, one thing I'll say about his two wives, ex-wives, uh, the Dons, they never, ever made Tommy feel that HIV was not real. Uh, they helped him with his medication. You know, uh, they paid for his medication sometimes. They did what they could to help him through HIV. And that wasn't the case later on in his life where he met people who, you know, sort of encouraged his, his delusions. Um, and that's ultimately where where it ended for Tommy. There really isn't much to say about the last couple of years of his life. He faded out of the, spot, the public spotlight. And um, the last 
interview I recall was the uh, interview, I think it was with Sam Mellinger, a journalist. And there, Tommy was talking about he was teleporting, he had the powers of teleportation, HIV was real, you know, God was on his side, such and such. So I guess I could have written 20 or 30 more pages, but that would have been depressing for me and for everybody else. Okay, Carlos, I'll I'll get you out of here with uh, one last question that I like to ask all my guests. First, again, let me say the name of Carlos's book is The Duke, The Life and Lies of Tommy Morrison. Um, And it's really just uh, fascinating. I mean, we touched on some of the anecdotes here, but I mean, some of the stuff is just really mind blowing. Um, And he's he's a fascinating character. And Carlos does a great job of capturing that. Um, So, Carlos, my final question for you is. What is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm gonna say I'll probably get some heat for this, but I'll say I'll say John Lardner, uh, White Hopes and Other Tigers. Uh, that came out I think in 1952 and 1953. Uh, the New Yorker had two boxing writers. Most people think that only uh, Liebling was the only boxing writer the New Yorker had, but John Lard- John Lardner was the other one, and I really enjoy that book because it. It underscores the absurdity of boxing as well as the tragic side of boxing. And you know, that's something that Liebling couldn't do, in my opinion. The tragic side didn't exist in Liebling. But Laudner really gets that down. Very, I recommend that book. I definitely recommend that book to anybody who's a boxing fan. Yeah, I'll have to check that out for sure. Yeah. All right, Carlos. Well, thank you so much again for coming on. It was really, really fun to talk to you about the book. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it.